0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George.
1: Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. In the studio, I have a friend, Professor John L. Thompson, who is Professor of Historical Theology and the Galen and Susan Biker Professor of Reform Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, John. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Now, you're at Beeson to present our Reformation Heritage Lectures, and we're delighted to have you here. I think your first time to come to our school. It is indeed. You and I have worked together on a project called the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which is a 28-volume series of exegetical comment from the 16th century. You've done the volume on Genesis 1 to 11, and you also are one of our general advisors on the advisory
0: board. So tell us a little bit about your involvement with the RCS, as we call it. Well, I was recruited to write a volume on the Reformation Commentary in Scripture back at the beginning of, of the series, Conception. And prior to that, I had done a lot of work in the history of exegesis. And happily enough, I had done a lot of work in the history of the exegesis of Genesis, uh, partly in my own doctoral dissertation. But then I wrote another book for Oxford University Press called Writing the Wrongs, Mm -hmm. which looked at uh, some episodes in the book of Genesis in particular, uh, having to do with Sarah and Hagar, and uh, some other uh, episodes where, in particular, especially women, are being not treated well, uh, trying to pick up a challenge that had been issued by Phyllis Tribble in her justly famous book, Texts of Terror, uh, in the Old Testament. So my appetite for the book of Genesis had by no means uh, been sated, and I was happy to have a reason not only to go back into Genesis, but to fill in some of the gaps, look at some of the chapters and stories that I had only run across in passing. So that that was an easy invitation to take up, because I love reading old commentaries, I love the, the uh, invitation to look at commentaries all across the spectrum of the Reformation, and I was especially delighted when the series indicated they wanted to try to bring in some moderate Roman Catholic voices from the 16th century, To bring in some Anabaptist voices wherever possible, and also to include the voices of women where we could find those uh, in particular passages. Uh, That kind of uh, in-house ecumenical uh, spirit is very much in keeping with um, my life at Fuller and my own disposition as a Christian.
1: Now, say how uh, you got interested in the history of exegesis.
0: Well, uh, my interest in the history of exegesis developed back when I was a grad student at Duke University, uh, working with David Steinmetz in History of Christianity. As I was working on Calvin, thinking I was going to work on Calvin's commentary on Genesis in particular, I gave my doctoral advisor a section of 110 pages Uh, to look at, which was provisionally the first two chapters of my dissertation. And so I sent that to him and had a face-to-face meeting afterwards. And his comment was, well, I liked 11 pages of it, which uh, I guess that's being damned by faint praise (laughs) that that meant that there were something like 99 pages that weren't so good. And he issued to me sort of the decree, you know, you can't just ruminate on Calvin and called it a dissertation, which was his way of saying, it doesn't tell us a lot. If you've only read Calvin, you'll make all kinds of mistakes. You may even conclude that John Calvin invented the internet, (laughs) which actually he didn't. So in order to, to pursue the topic that was developing in my research at that time, which was Calvin's views on the public ministry of women, I began to realize that ruminating on Calvin was in fact not going to lead anywhere and I immediately began casting my eyes to Calvin's contemporaries. And then I thought, well, I need to see who Calvin was reading or who whom he might have read. So I looked at his predecessors. And then I said, well, those people are also borrowing views. And, and fairly quickly, a whole network of Christian commentators fell into place that was not only, I suppose, on the one hand, overwhelming, but it was fascinating to see that these commentators, even the Protestant commentators who say our authority is from Scripture alone, They meant scripture alone, as that's been understood in the history of the Christian church. So it mattered a lot that Augustine or Chrysostom agreed with them uh, and that they were having this dialogue with the the fathers of the church. It's likewise the case that many of them were reading some of the medieval commentators, sometimes with footnotes, sometimes without footnotes. But the lines of influence uh, are pervasive and fascinating, and they can often be unraveled. And it's hilarious to, to read something in Calvin or in Luther and, and you find something either credited or not credited that you know has come from yet another source. And so you learn something about their, I guess you might say, about their private lives as scholars. Uh, whom are they reading but not thinking it very important to tell you about? So So I began to discover that I knew a lot more about what Calvin's views were when I could set forth sort of on the dissecting tray – What really was new about Calvin's point of view on any given topic? What views did he hold that were in the majority position? And where, in some cases, was he actually a minority of one? To know that he held position X is interesting, but to know that he was the only one to hold such and such a position was twice as interesting or more, because you begin to realize he has some vested interests or some agenda that he thinks is worth overriding the views of most of his friends and the people he would regard as authorities. Now, Calvin is
1: often referred to today. There's a kind of resurgence of Calvinism. We've heard a lot about that. And many people think of Calvin as kind of the quintessential theologian. Uh, but in fact, there's a lot of theology in his work, but he he was a teacher and preacher of Scripture, wasn't he? Talk a little bit about Calvin, his context, and how he saw his own vocation vis-a-vis the Bible.
0: Well, that's a an interesting question. I was preparing a sermon, not on Calvin, but on Scripture, uh, recently. But I consulted Calvin to see what he might be saying on such-and-such such a topic, and I ran across a wonderful line from Calvin where he, and I'll be paraphrasing here, he, he said that our salvation consists in our being mirrors of God's glory because God wants his glory to be known as our goodness. And I thought that was a fantastic intersection of Calvin's agenda as an exegete, but I think it's his, his agenda as a, even a social reformer, that uh, not just proclaiming the glory of God as if that were self-evident and obvious good, when in fact most people say, well, what does it mean to live for the glory of God? That's kind of Christian-speak, and I don't think all Christians actually know what it means to live for the glory of God. And Calvin's first step in unpacking that is to say that God's glory is manifested in God's goodness mm. and that in turn is manifested in, in God making us, in providing for us, in giving us a purpose, and in guiding us all along the way including our love of God, worship of God, but also our love of neighbor and care for neighbor. So uh, God's goodness is manifested in the way we live our lives both as we are saved from our own selfishness and and, and uh, inclinations towards sin, but also saved in the sense that we become those mirrors mm. of the glory of God towards our neighbor. You know, which is a lot like what Luther would have said uh, with respect to you know the love of one's neighbor. That that's one of the reasons we're put here. That in itself doesn't save us, but it's it's it just if you really want to make sense of your life, start loving your neighbor, yeah. and and then you'll begin to you'll begin to see who you really are and what you're really made for, as opposed to. All the artificial things we bring into our lives. So Calvin's work in Geneva, as a scholar, as a reformer, uh, could be described as his, in, his his attempt to let me use the current lingo to lean in to the glory of God, yeah, yeah. Uh, to, to 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 live into it and to manifest it, but not as an abstract preachy concept, yeah. but but really, uh, glory can be translated probably first and foremost, I think, in Calvin's tradition as meaning good and goodness. Mm. That that Calvin thinks we are called to be good, we are called to experience and enjoy the goodness of God. That's what it's all about. And so everything he does in Geneva, whether it's from the pulpit or in another context in terms of social reform, poor relief, all those things, ultimately they're about maximizing the appreciation for God's goodness in the world around.
1: And you quoted uh, Calvin's talk about our being mirrors Speculum, that Latin word which he was so fond of, he refers to Jesus Christ as the speculum, the mirror through which God the Father looks to us and finds us reconciled in his Son and through which we look to God to find assurance. And You can't talk about Calvin. I can't talk to you about Calvin, the uh, honored Calvin Reformation scholar, without asking you about predestination. Because so many people have said this is the central doctrine around which Calvin's theology revolves. Uh, it's clearly an important part of the Reformed tradition uh, in its confessional standards. Um, talk about Calvin, the teacher of predestination. What did that mean for him?
0: If I hadn't known it earlier, I certainly knew when, my, when one of my daughters was in eighth grade and brought home her world history or civics textbook And there was a brief entry on the Protestant Reformation. And within that brief entry, there was an an even briefer entry on John Calvin, perhaps two very lean paragraphs in which Calvin was cited as being a strong advocate of a doctrine of predestination and that Calvin was somewhat of a tyrant in Geneva. Need I say that there were no footnotes (laughs) to this particular textbook? And I, I tracked it down and said, well, it was written by someone with a master's degree in something or other, but at that point, we said to our daughter, if you can't believe what the textbook is saying when it's describing your own tradition, how much should you trust it when it's describing people of other traditions? Mm-hmm. That uh, it, it was extremely worrisome. So, yes, Calvin has this reputation. Oh, uh, Calvin, predestination, terrifying doctrine. He must have been a terrifying man. He must have been vindictive and filled, filled with the wrath of God. Uh, I was I was struck recently by uh, reading a review of Daryl Hart's book on Calvinism that's just come out, in in which uh, the reviewer apparently quotes Daryl as saying, "Well, Calvin actually doesn't write about predestination all that much," and if you look at it uh, on the bookshelf with all fifty-eight volumes of the Calvini Opera, it's true that predestination is not a big deal, and in fact, I dare say that when Calvin had a, a short section on predestination in the Institutes when he revised them in 1539, if that hadn't flagged the attention of some of his staunch opponents who attack him as being unchristian for holding this doctrine and, and claiming that the doctrine is itself unbiblical, I dare say Calvin would never have acquired this reputation because I think most of what he wrote on predestination, and he does have a couple of treatises directly on the topic, and he has four chapters in the Institutes that deal with the question, but most of these, I think, are, are generated as answers to the attacks that had been placed upon him. And I think the problem is that these were not attacks from what he would regard as Christian brothers and sisters. I think he regarded most of them as attacks from outside the faith. People who actually did not like the Bible, did not like God, did not like the notion of a sovereign God, and therefore attacked Calvin in every way possible. And Calvin, as always, felt honor-bound to defend the dignity of God and to defend the dignity of the Bible. So I think almost everything he writes, however you deem it to be either long or short, is largely a defense of the dignity of God in God's Word and ought to be read that way first and foremost. Beyond that, that's, I think that what seems to be a central doctrine in Calvin probably isn't a central doctrine except for those for whom it's sort of like a sore thumb in the wrong place. Calvin has a really, really interesting thing to say when he's talking about predestination, and that is first and foremost, and I'm paraphrasing Calvin here, he he says to his readership, I didn't make this up. Yeah. Uh, this isn't my scheme, it's in the Bible. Yeah. Okay, if something is in the Bible, and you could say this is sort of Calvin's hermeneutic at a low level, if it's in the Bible, it didn't get there by accident, It's probably there because God thought we ought to know something about this and it's in there probably to the exact extent that God wants us to know about it. So that means if it answers some of our questions, then you could conclude that God wants some of our questions to be answered. If some of our questions are not answered, Calvin would probably say that suggests God doesn't think at this point we need to have those answers. So he's, he really is trying to be a biblical theologian in tracing through what, what can be said and what must be said about predestination. The other side of that is that because it's in the Bible, Calvin says it must be there to bless us. This is a theme in Calvin that just this crops up everywhere, this notion of benefit Every doctrine has a benefit. God does not give us teaching to satisfy our curiosity. He gives us teaching for an even better reason, and that is to bless us, to uh, edify us, to help us uh, grow up as, uh, as his followers, disciples, believers. And so Calvin talks about the doctrine of predestination and says, frankly, there are three benefits to this doctrine. One is that it teaches us humility, Mm. because it shows God doing for us something we could never do for ourselves. Uh, The other is it teaches us gratitude, because this comes to us free, at no charge whatsoever, that that, that Christ is God's gift to us. Mm. What is the response to a gift? It is sheer gratitude. Mm. Not only could I not have done this on my own, it was given to me free of charge. And the third benefit is that it frees us from fear. Mm. So that in a situation where you wonder, am I going to maintain my confession, you fall back and you realize, I was not saved by my courage in the face of torture. I was saved by Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, and and so these are the three benefits, Calvin says, and I think what is fantastic and amazing and exhilarating is that that's it. Mm. The list Mm. ends. So... He doesn't say, oh, and it's handy to help you plan your day. <laughs> it's handy to know where to plan a church and where just to give up on. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's really nifty because it tells you who's not worth praying for. None of that stuff ever crosses his lectern. It's sheerly about humility and gratitude and freedom from fear. And if you, if you keep the doctrine on that short leash so that that's what it's meant for, and you don't try to say it, it, it's good for all kinds of other things, uh, to me, it's a fantastic understanding and affirmation of God's sovereignty over my mortality, over uh, over my feebleness.
1: Should it be preached, or do we just kind of keep it in the background?
0: I think it needs to be preached with some care. Luther, Luther would, would pretty much say, uh, I'm not so sure this should be preached. It, it should be taught. Um, it should be understood. Okay, that's for pastors, perhaps so that they know that they shouldn't casually wander into it, because... It's amazing you drop the word predestination out onto the table, and you don't have to start a a discussion or a bonfire. It just explodes. People have very strong feelings about the doctrine, and they blame it on Calvin, even though I tell my students, you know, Calvin's position is hardly different from that of Aquinas, hardly different from that of Augustine. This is not a Protestant-Catholic debate, folks. This is, you know, this is something that's a a piece of solidarity between Protestants and Catholics, if you really understand your uh, your your tradition properly. So should it be preached? I think it should be preached when it comes up. Yeah, but it should be preached with the same care that Calvin uh, Calvin puts into it, recognizing that there's no sermon, no scripture text, no doctrine uh, that you can think of that doesn't, in fact, have room for curious questions. You say, "Well, gee, I wonder what God was doing before the world was created. I wonder, you know, what, you know, what this doctrine means or I wonder, you know, where did Jesus descend?" And we have all kinds of questions yeah. that come up and they're not bad, but if they lead us to distrust the clear teachings of scripture, then they've clearly carried us away. And I think that some some people let that happen mm. that they they say, "Well, this just is a picture of God that I can't deal with. Therefore, I can't trust anything else about God." And you kind of get the kitchen sink approach. Mm. So that's why uh, probably my my favorite passage in the long section on predestination in Calvin comes in Institutes uh, book 3 chapter 24 and I think it's paragraph 5 and this is also a piece that's uh that occurs in the Second Helvetic Confession written by Heinrich Bullinger and I really think that Bullinger's plagiarizing here but I'm I'm happy with that actually it's where Calvin says let Christ be the looking glass of your election, mm. and I think that is the I mean I get goosebumps simply mm-hmm. recounting that because he's saying, you know if in fact you are concerned about your election or if you have a troubled uh, a troubled heart about this matter, he says, well then don't look at the doctrine, don't look at the uh, you know even at the sermon look to jesus Mm. if in fact you look to jesus and you discover the holy spirit crying out within you abba father well then you know that you belong to christ and christ belongs to you and and i tell my student okay now at the end of that that line right there you belong to christ there's an asterisk and at the bottom of the page it says oh by the way you're elect by the way that's an implication but Mm. we don't look to the doctrine For our assurance, we look to Jesus. Uh,
1: You've written a book, John, Reading the Bible with the Dead, which is a fascinating title, but an even more interesting subtitle. What you can learn from the history of exegesis that you can't learn from exegesis alone. What are you talking about there?
0: Well, my wife is a is a professor of New Testament Fuller, and and so I asked her. I got her permission. Uh, can I can I uh, use this as as a subtitle in in hopes that I can make some of your colleagues a little annoyed? <laughs> and she said, Yeah, go ahead, annoy them. So <laughs> uh, it's the the subtitle is in fact more important to me than the the main title of the book. Even though I I happen to like whimsicality, and so if you look at the the various chapter titles inside the book, you'll discover more whimsy going on there, here and there as well. So. Um, I, I like the, the, the subtitle, though, because it seems to me that there are some passages in the Bible where we have more questions than answers. Uh, we have, we have There are places in the Bible where things go on, and you keep thinking by the end of this chapter in Genesis or in Exodus or in Kings or Samuel, some authorial voice is going to come across and say, and what so-and-so did was flat out, Wrong and stupid and and mean, but you don't get that. You and we've got these stories in the Bible where their silences are are, are glaring. They're, they're 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 clanging because you want someone to say that that can't be right, can it? Surely he didn't do that without some slap on the wrist or some word of rebuke, and you don't get that. And so in some cases, people either write those passages off as, well, we don't really believe those today or we don't really uh, pay attention to them, or we find some banality to fill in those silences. In reading the Bible with the dead, um, I picked about nine different clusters of texts and topics that uh, deal with these kinds of Bible verses where things happen or things are said that we find frightening or puzzling or even scandalous. Mm -hmm. And I asked myself, okay, the Bible does not fill in the silence here. How does the church fill in that silence? I mean, we assume, I think with at least some degree of confidence, that the Spirit does guide the church. Uh, And so I, I, I gave myself the task of looking at 15 or 16 centuries of Christian Bible commentaries. I'm a Reformation scholar, so I certainly wanted to get to my old homeboy's. Uh, and then a little bit beyond that to some of the Puritans to see, okay, prior to the, the advent of the great so-called critical scholarship, what did these pre- critical commentators say on some of these texts and topics? And can we can we see what they said? And in a sense, do we see the mind of the church revealed in their interpretations taken as a big picture? And in the mind of the church in that way, do we see the spirit working to continue to witness to the church, because it seems to me that's one of the great resources of the history of exegesis for us today, is to uh, to, to study these these long trajectories and ask ourselves: Are we doing as well as they are? Uh, do we have as much theology as they do? Do we have sensitivity to textual details like they had? And do our hearts testify to us in in? compassionate and passionate ways, which is often what we find happening in these pre-critical commentaries. And then I thought, well, most pastors are not going to sit down and read 40 ancient commentaries in Greek and Latin in order to preach on these texts. So I tried to write that book. I tried to write a series of chapters, any one of which could be read in about one hour, uh, in a sense, to give any pastor some word of briefing on what would otherwise be well, I'm going in there with a little bit of uh, Greek and Hebrew and some commentaries, and I'll give you the last opinion I read. Well, I thought, well, if I, maybe I can give you about half a dozen more opinions that, that digest pretty much a broad sweep of the whole church on some of these thorny passages.
1: Reading the Bible with the dead, what you can learn from the history of exegesis that you can't learn from exegesis alone is from Erdman's in 2007. My guest today on the Beeson podcast has been Professor John L. Thompson of Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, He is the editor of Genesis 1 through 11 in the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, many other books, a wonderful person of the church, and a brilliant scholar who brings his scholarship to bear on the life of faith and the life of the church. Thank you, John, for being with us today.
0: My pleasure.